You're listening to a podcast of Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, where our mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. We'll spend some time in God's Word today, like we do every Lord's Day. The primary aspect of our gathering in his, his, in his name is the um, expectation of not only just reading and spending time in the Word, but through the Spirit, through the inspiration of the Scripture, that it really speaks to us today as we are here and our needs. Amen? Okay, our, our next series is going to be on the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, okay? Wow. Okay, we'll try to We'll try to keep moving. Today we're going to talk about marriage. Okay, now you're... Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. This could go either way. Um, as some of you know that... Uh, and our theme, by the way, is the days are long and the years are short for our family series. We're doing a four-part series on the family. As many of you know, Monica and I... Uh, there's Monica. Raise your hand, Monica, for those who don't know you. That's Monica. Say hi, Monica. Hi, Monica. Okay, uh, Monica and I have been married for 35 years and uh, we had our 35th uh, anniversary this past August. Well, what you might not know is that we have actually been together for much longer than that. We started dating when I was a ripe old 16. I was a junior in high school. She was a much, much older and more mature 17 uh, and a senior in high school. Um, We have been together then for for over 39 years, which is over 70% of my life. I have been a couple with Monica. This came, uh, has comes apparent once in a while, like last week when Josh preached on singleness. Um, I, I never really experienced singleness as many of you have experienced. Since I was 16, um, the Lord had given me this gorgeous girl and I didn't let go. So uh, I, didn't, I didn't date anybody else. I have, I have no other experience. And that's not right or wrong. That's just my experience. But the reason I begin with that is that we have had a lot of time together, and there's been some ups, and there's been some downs, some peaks, some valleys, and uh, we, we, uh, I suggested to her that we just stand up here and just field questions. She didn't think that was a good idea. That, <laughs> that, that, that could turn, uh, turn not so good real quick, okay? Um, but when, one of the things that we, I think, in God's providence and knowing us and God's grace, early in, actually before we were married, a year before we were married, and then for about three years after we were married, we attended a church that was very pro, uh, proactive in teaching about family. Uh, they called it men's discipleship and women's discipleship. Uh, not sexy, not appealing, but it's effective. You know what it's about. And they talked about husbands and wives and families and marriage and parenting. And they had this theme that was running all the time. And you could always be taking something. And we're very thankful because in those early, early years, we were still, still teenagers, we got well grounded in what God's Word said about marriage and being a man, being a woman, being a husband, being a wife, being a, a parent. And it wasn't too long after that that we were parents. We had two children while we were still in college, so we, had, uh, we didn't do the college scene either. We were married. So uh, there's a lot of things that we didn't experience in the normal way, but that's what. But we experienced a lot about family. And we've been doing a series on family because, as we, we said to you before, it's just a four-week series. This is the third one. And because as we have surveyed Red Sea and said, what are some of the struggles of life? Family came up for a variety of reasons. And so we wanted to address it. 
And uh, our theme, as I mentioned, is the days are long, uh, but the years are short. And today we're going to talk about God's design for marriage. And part of this is both the reason we're doing this series, but also the danger of doing this series. And that is that, that people have, like myself, have varied experiences in their family background. Uh, they have varied experiences with regards to marriage uh, and parenting and those kind of things. So therefore, we all bring to the table our experiences, and when we read God's Word or we listen to God's design, and we say, oh, that's, that's not what I experienced. That's, that's not the way I, I had it. And, and that may be true. But what we're trying to do is say, okay, what was God's design? And we'll go from there later. But if we're not clear with how something is originally designed, especially God designed it, then all the other things, it's, it's fair game for whatever we want to do. And we're saying it's, it's not fair game. Let's, let's go back to the design. So that's, that's part of the dangers, but it's also part of the attraction of this. So today we're going to focus on back in Genesis. I was two weeks ago. And God's going to lay out some principles of, of marriage that are, are universal and uh, are still applicable today. So will you stand with me as we read two passages of Scripture? We're going to be reading Genesis 1, 20, we're beginning in verses 26 through 28. And then we're going to jump to a part of Genesis chapter 2. So hear the word of the Lord for us today. And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's jump to chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. And then the Lord said to him, It is not said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every uh, bird in the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever man called every living creature, that's what his, its name. And man... The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds and to the heavens and to every beast of the field. For Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept and took one of the ribs and closed it up at its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to man. And then man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and, the two, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that way, way, way back 
uh, as you created the world and you disclosed that to us through the writing of Moses, writings of Moses, you allow us to have the glimpse into not only your awesomeness and your power, but also your design for the universe and your design specifically for us as men and women, as husbands and wives. So we just pray, Lord, that you would give us insight, allow us to receive your word, and uh, be encouraged by it. And we just expect that would happen. In your name, amen. You may be seated. God's design for marriage, and I, there's, two, there's a couple basic parts to this. I'm going to s- sort of define it. Um, there's t- two parts of it I want to define and in this text. And what I want to do today is I'm going to stay mostly uh, until the very end. I'm going to stay in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Um, This is where uh, we could go all over the place in the Bible, but I wanted to focus here because this really lays out the design. And that's the theme. How did did God intend this to function? Um, And we can go off into a lot of different directions. um, And, you know, we can't say everything in an hour and a half sermon. So uh, um, books are written about this. So I might not answer all your questions. So I'm going to try to stay focused and get through some stuff. And we're going to move fairly quickly. The first part of God, about God's design is marriage is that man and woman are created in God's image to rule the earth for God. Man and women, man and woman are created in God's image to rule the earth for God. That's the creation narrative. Genesis 1 in particular. Genesis 1 gives this big picture of creation, and then he zeroes in on Genesis 2, where he unpacks a little more details about man and woman. And then Genesis 3 from on tells it a little bit differently. So we see this in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. We're created in God's image. We, we talked about this two weeks ago. So uh, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man out of his own image. Out of the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, Adam and Eve are uniquely created in of all creation. That gives them worth and dignity and significance that the rest of creation, because of their uniqueness, don't have. And we talked about two weeks ago when I, when I shared about God's design for families that they were created in our image, in our likeness. God is talking in the plural. And God exists as a Trinitarian God, one, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is three. And, he, and therefore, we, we saw a couple weeks ago that interpersonal relationships, community, we're designed in to be a part of community, is part of God's design. It's been for eternity. It existed even before people existed. There was community in a Trinitarian Godhead. And we also saw a couple weeks ago that there were relational characteristics within the community of the Trinity. And since we're created in God's image, those things are true for us too. They should be true for us, though they are marred and dysfunctional in many respects today because of sin. The fact is we are still traded that way. We have roles and responsibilities. The, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit have different roles and responsibilities. And they know, each know their part. They each know what they're doing. Um, and they each understand and cooperate with the other one as they each function within their different roles and responsibilities. We, we saw, for example, that the Father loved the world and sent the Son into the world to, to die for sins. The Father didn't come to the world to die for sins. The Holy Spirit didn't come to the world to die for sins. The Father sent the Son, and the Son went and did what the Father told him to do. They, are they any less God, each one? No. Are there any change of value, change of significance? No, they're equally God, but they have different roles and responsibilities. So do people. So do man and women, because we're created in his image. We function within roles and responsibilities. We also saw that there was communication with the Godhead. They had conversations. They talked. Let us make man in our image is a conversation. It's a 
short one on our end, but it, they, they talked about, hey, we're going to create the world. We also know they talked about redeeming the world after everything goes wrong. We know that they had those conversations. And in the Godhead, there was no, nothing hidden. There was no deception. There was complete, perfect communication. If we're created in his image, there should be communication among people. Among, in our context today, husbands and wives. With no, nothing hidden, no deception. There should be regular conversations about what's going, what happened and what's going to happen. The submission. The Trinity knows who submits to whom, when, and why. The Son submits to the Father. The Son submits to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit submits to the Son at times. We know that, but here's the key thing. That submission is an acknowledgement of role and responsibility, not worth. When the Son submits to the Father, he's not less God. It's not about his worth. He's not less valuable. Submission is not an, an issue of, of uh, being dominated by somebody. It is yielding to your role and responsibility. You know, all of us, at some point, submit, whether employers, government, whatever, at least we should at times, um, separate sermon. Anyways, um, but we should, um, the, but it's not about a value. There's also unity in the Godhead. They, were, they had a correct understanding of their roles and responsibilities. They had communication submission. So they were always united. They were always on the same page. Again, if we're created in his image, that's God's expectation for man and woman, particularly in marriage. And also there was intimacy. Intimacy involves more than just physical intimacy, which we often think of, but it's a love relationship. It's a oneness. It's a commitment to relationship is intimacy. So we're created, man and woman are created in God's image. The marriage is, is part of God's image. It's meant for, designed for interpersonal relationships. It's designed for a, a small two-people community. And, it's all, and it has those six characteristics of what it means to be in God's image. That's, that's just a foundational beginning of what marriage begins with. But then he go, the text goes on and he says, so uh, man, and, man and women are created in God's image to rule the earth for God. We see this in verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of the heavens and over the, every living thing that moves along the earth. God is the creator of everything. He's the owner of everything. He's the sustainer. He keeps it here and stable for everything. This is his world, and everything in it is his. Man and woman, woman together, together, were given the commission to have a joint function, and it has two aspects. They were supposed to have representative rule. They're not God, but they represent God to rule over creation. We see that. And let them have dominion. Let them, plural, man and woman, have dominion over the earth. And then it goes on and says there's a joint stewardship. Uh, we don't use the word stewardship much in our culture, which is unfortunate. A steward, or to have stewardship, means you have, you've been given something that's not your own, but it's of great value. And you are to take care of that and to use it the way the owner of that thing of great value intends it to be used, whether it's land or riches or people or whatever. And you will be held accountable for how you use that. It's all through the Bible. Jesus frequently used parables and stuff of stewardship, of accountability. We will be held accountable. And that's what this is part of. Adam and Eve... Adam and Eve, the man and woman, are caretakers are of great value. They're stewards of what God has. So God puts them on a mission. From the very beginning, God says, you're not just to sit around here and eat grapes and lie in a hammock all day. I got work for you to do. You're supposed to expand the garden, bring order to chaos, and expand my presence throughout the whole world. They were only in the Garden of Eden. We talked about that two weeks ago. 
So God gives them a mission. He blessed them together. Together, he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Together, they are to fill the earth and subdue it. And bringing God's presence in order, like a garden, into the world. So that's what it means to be created in God's image to rule the earth for God. But he unpacks even more detail, specifically in Genesis chapter 2. Now this is where it gets a little uncomfortable for many of us, especially in our culture. This is where it rubs some of us the wrong way, both men and women. He says this, and this is my definition, is to do this, for man and woman creating God's image to rule the earth for God, to do this, he creates marriage. We saw that two weeks ago. And as husbands and wife, they have different yet complementary roles and responsibilities, just like the Trinity. Let me just unpack that a little more detail. God's design is for the husband to have primary authority and responsibility to lead the partnership in obedience to God's word with the necessary and complementary help of the wife. Those are my words. God's design is for the husband to have the primary authority and responsibility to lead the partnership of marriage on mission in obedience to God's word with the necessary, or you could say essential, and complementary matching help of the wife. Now God's word is, is true, and part of God's word is true is that we understand it, it, get clear, it communicates to us God's intentions, his expectations, how things are expected to function even if we have not experienced it to function that way. And none of us in this room have experienced being in God's image and being on that mission and having authority and things in the way God designed because we're on this side of the fall. We're, we have sinned in our life. But the way God originally designed it, sin had nothing to do with it at this time. We'll see in a minute how that changes. Seven reasons from this text, seven reasons from this text why Adam is given primary authority, and responsibility in the marriage. Okay? We're going to move quickly through these. Seven reasons. First of all, Adam was created before Eve. God created Adam. They did stuff together. We don't know how long. It doesn't say. But they interacted together. God spoke to them. He gave them the commands. He did this stuff with them. He knows they're there. And God says, and, and Eve wasn't on the horizon for Adam at all during this time. In, in, in the Bible, birth order is a very significant theme. We're not going to unpack it now. Um, and, and tracing birth order, who's born first, means a lot. And when somebody like God reverses birth order, that's a huge deal, like he did sometimes. So Adam has the first birth order. He's the first human created, a.k.a. birth. Second, Adam is given God's mission and commands before Eve was even created. Adam is given, instructed by God, do this. This is the mission, even before Eve was around. Okay? We saw this in Genesis 2.15. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You got a job. Get to work. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He's very generous. You can freely, in other translations, you can freely eat of every tree in the garden, except one. And then he names it as, as a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, for when the day of you eat it, you shall surely die. So God instructs in great detail, we have a summary, of what Adam is to do, how is he to do it, 
and the responsibilities he's supposed to have and the authority and the consequences for Adam if he fails to do what God says. And he's only given one prohibition. Okay? This is going to become come important later, the wording of that later in the message. Third, God creates Eve to be Adam's helper. To be Adam's helper. This is part of the wording that, that some people uh, struggle with. And it says, verse 18, and the, God said, and the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him or fit for him. One that matches well. Hand in glove. Face to face. This, this is a, a, a helper who is going to just fit just perfect. So what does God do? So he, and it's interesting. God says this. He announces this. The first thing negative. This is a certain thing not good. And what does he not do? Go create Eve. He doesn't create Eve. The first thing, God, then God says, instead, God had man name the animals. Here, I'm going to bring you all the animals and you're going to name them. And what you name them, he didn't mean like Fido and, and, and names. He meant this is the types of animals. He's going to, he has to understand what the animal is. He's naming. He's, he's had, why did God do that? Why did he take all the time? Because Adam was, first of all, functioning within his authority over creation. I'm ruling and I'm naming what everything is. Secondly, when Adam gets done... He's alone. Adam now realizes he's alone. None of those animals that I just named fit me, Adam was thinking. And therefore, he suddenly realized, or came to probably a gradual awareness of his relation, I'm by myself, I'm unique, I'm different. And God waited for him to come to that realization before he acted. And then the woman is called a unique helper, a a right fit, and and it directly contrasts with animals. I'm sorry, dog lovers. They're not the same. Okay? Eve is unique. Woman and man are unique. They fit perfectly together in many respects. And therefore, God designed it. She was unique. The word helper is just a role. It's, It's a word that means, you ready? Helper. Uh, it's used throughout in different places New, uh, of the Old Testament, particularly of people, servants, stuff, who helped. It's also used of God who helped Israel. So there are times that God functioned in a role. He's, in a sense, God subordinated himself and said, Israel's in trouble, I'm going to help them. It's like, it's a, like for us, it's parents helping your child. You sort of come down to their level, and you, you help them with their math skills or potty skills, whatever you're doing, Okay? It's the same. You're a helper. That's what the word is. And, and the implication with Adam is he needed some help. Things weren't going to get done if he did not have the assistance of Eve. This is a crucial aspect of that. Adam, ha- um, and she would has a role, this, this helper was a distinct role, and it was different from Adam's role. She is his helper. He is not called her helper. And under the God, Adam's authority, and she is a partner on mission with God, and it implies that he wouldn't get it done if she didn't help him out. Fourthly, God creates Eve from Adam. God creates Eve from Adam. So the Lord, verse 21, so the Lord caused deep sleep to fall on the man, this is after he named all the animals, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his side in his flesh, and then the rib, that rib the Lord took, had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. It's significant here that we're told explicitly that Adam and all the animals were made out of the dust of the ground. And then God breathed life into them. 
Eve is uniquely created in that she's not created from the dust of the ground. She's created from Adam. And that's the significance in that. He, he didn't just breathe, just form a, He could have formed them both together at the same time. But he intentionally formed Adam, and from Adam, without Adam, there would be no Eve in the way God's designed. It's the first wedding. God, the Father, brings a wife to, to Adam. Fifth, Adam names Eve. And the man said, this, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He recognized the, the union that they have, the, the similarity they have. And he shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The very first recorded words of the Bible by, of a man, a person speaking, is a man singing poetry about his wife. The very first words. I think it's significant. Six, man, or Adam, is to leave his parents in order to establish his own family uh, with his wife at his side. We see this in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So it's significant, and we talked about this two weeks ago, uh, um, Moses, who wrote Genesis, is talking about a narrative. He's telling a story, things happen, and he pauses it's the first time in the Bible that somebody pauses and gives a comment so that we don't miss the point. He actually explains the significance of the events happening. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this is significant. A man leaves home, not the woman. Okay? To establish a marriage, the man has to leave home. Not, not necessarily physically, but he's establishing a new household. We know through the rest of the Old Testament, families lived intergenerationally. They didn't have to necessarily physically leave, but they did establish a separate household. Every man had his household. The wife didn't do that. The husband did that. Um, I need to uh, just do a little segue here for a second. This is, uh, Beverly, this is my rabbit trail. Yeah, it's not a rabbit trail. It's actually an apology. Two weeks ago, I came to this point and I emphasized that this text talks about uh, that marriage is between one man and one woman. And I said that, um, and it does. And um, after I spoke, uh, we got some feedback from a few people who felt that not what I said was inaccurate, but how I said it was harsh. That what I was saying in in the forcefulness of my emphasis in this particular pace of my sermon came across as harsh to those either with same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage. That was not my intention. Okay, so I apologize if I'm offensive. I should not be offensive up here. I'm not here to offend you. God's word to do that on its own. Okay? I'm here, and we want to express love and concern to everybody, anybody who would come in here and wants to hear the gospel. The, as I thought about it, and I talked to Josh, and I talked to Monica, my harshness was not with same-sex couples. If you remember, my harshness was those who open their Bible and misuse the Bible to justify things that the Bible clearly teaches is wrong. And that's the harshness of my, my mind at that time was those people who are using their Bible, saying, for example, I use that Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage, therefore it's okay. okay? And I said, that's not accurate. Jesus said marriage between a man and a woman. Okay? So I apologize. And we, we want to be a church that is correct with content, but also is loving and extends that to people. So, and with harshness aside, let's move on. 
Seventh, God approaches Adam first after the sin and holds him accountable. We're jumping to chapter 3. But when all is said is done, when they sin, when they screw up, which we'll look about in a minute, God comes after Adam. He does not come after Adam and Eve. He doesn't come after Eve. We see this in verse, chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, literally in the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord for God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He, God had given Adam the authority and corresponding responsibility. Now he's calling him on it and said, Where are you, Adam? Those seven reasons are reasons why we say that man, a husband, not man over woman, but husband and wife, the husband has the primary authority and a primary responsibility in the marriage to be on mission for what God's designed them to be. We could go through, and if I normally, the way I normally preach, I would now start listing all the New Testament references to that. I'm not going to do that because we have other things to talk about. But the New Testament validates that this text really does teach that. We need to move on. Man and woman are created in God's image to rule the earth for God. To do this as a husband and wife, they have different yet complementary roles and responsibilities. The very next chapter, things fall apart. Doesn't take long, does it? Things fall apart in chapter 3. We know it theologically as the fall. The fall. Satan comes into the garden, disguised as a serpent, and interacts with Adam and Eve. And what's crucial, that's really, really important, that we understand Satan's tactics and what he was doing there. Satan's deceptive attack strikes at two points. Two points. And this is really important. First, Satan attacks God's word. We'll see in a second. He he attacks God's word and indirectly attacks God himself. That's his goal. But the second one is often overlooked, and yet it is crucial to his his whole plan on bringing bringing the downfall of man and woman. Um, Satan strikes at God's ordained roles and responsibilities for Adam and Eve. He attacks them at their roles and responsibilities. Both relinquish their roles, thus the fall of man. Let's look at this, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I'm just going to read through it quickly so we're on the same page, make a couple of comments, we're going to go quickly. It's a pretty straightforward, so we don't need to spend a tremendous amount of time on it. Genesis chapter 3, now, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And then he goes on and says, And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the, any tree of the garden? So stop here for a second. Satan does not begin by directly contradicting God, directly con- attacking Adam or Eve. He calls into question, did God really say that? Are you, are you, are you sure you got that right, Eve? Are you, are you sure? Can, can that even be right? That doesn't make sense. Does that make sense to you? He's causing doubt first. That's his tactic. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, and he addresses, he addresses the woman. He does not address Adam. He speaks directly, text says, he speaks directly to the woman. And she responds to him. 
And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is when things turn very quickly. Eve misquotes the command that God gave Adam. She misquotes it. Now, how does she know it? She wasn't there. We have to assume that Adam told her. Okay? She wasn't, she wasn't around when he got it. And maybe through the, his conversations with God, she picked it up. But whatever it was, she misquotes it here. She, um, uh, she says here, uh, we may or we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. That's not what God said. He says, you are free to eat of every tree of the garden. She limits God's generosity. She cuts that out. Secondly, she go, he goes, uh, she goes, um, we can eat the tree that's in the midst of the garden, in the center, that one over there. That's not what God called it. He didn't use it by a location. He said, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He named it. And then she said, and we can't even touch it. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. You could, you could build a treehouse in it. You can swing from it. You can do whatever you want with it. You just can't eat the fruit. But she made it more restrictive. How? We're not told. Then verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will, you will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of, the, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Now Satan is directly contradicting God and, and inserts the desire that led to his own fall. You will be like God. And that's what led to his downfall. Verse 6, so the man, excuse me, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and the tree was was a desire to be, make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The woman saw. She saw it was a delight for her eyes. It was something to be desired. All those descriptors are internal to her. They have nothing to do with what God said, and they have nothing to do with her husband. They were all from her and without her husband's input. And we're told that Eve took and ate and then gave some to her husband and ate. I, I personally think that's hugely significant. She took from it, she ate, and then she didn't like take some and then give him some, and let's do this together, okay? She didn't do that. She took some and ate, and then she handed some to him. And we know that he was there watching her this whole time because the text says he was there with her, and then he ate. And that's the significant phrase. The significant phrase in this whole fall is those four words, who was with her. Adam is there through this whole conversation. Adam is there through this whole deception. Adam is there this whole time, and he refuses or fails to function within the authority and responsibility God had given him as the husband, and therefore the fall of man's sin enters the world. And this is huge. This is what leads to the fall of humanity. A man, particularly Adam, is passive. He's there, but does not take action. He does not take decisive action as God had commanded him to do. He did not take decisive action to expel Satan. Uh, Satan came uh, as a beast of the field. Adam had dominion over the beasts of the field, could have booted him. He had the authority and the power to boot Satan from the garden. He did not. Adam did not take decisive action to correct his wife. 
when she's misquoting the commands that he told her, he does not intervene. He does not correct her, does not clarify, does not restate what God said. And Adam, without taking decisive action, fails to protect his wife. He stood by and watched her take action that he knew was harmful for her. He may not have understood what death was. Nobody had ever died. But he sure knew it was important to God because that was the consequences of of violating the law. So he knew what was going to happen, and he let his wife take an action that would get her those consequences. And then he joined her. He yielded to maybe peer pressure. Uh, It's too late to go back now. We don't know. But he took the apple. It's not an apple. Took the fruit and functioned. Eve functions outside her role and responsibilities also. Adam is the primary responsible, remember. But Eve had her part in this. She does not function as Adam's helper. She failed to function within her role. She does not uh, she too does not take dominion over the serpent. She too had authority to say, hit the road or slither away, whatever you say to a serpent. She had full authority to say, get out of here, we're done with this conversation. She does not do that. She did not rely on her husband's authority to do that also. She did not encourage, I'm not sure the right word here, encourage her husband to take responsibility. She should have said any time, oh, I think you got this. I'll help you deal with him. She does not do that. And she took initiative that was not hers to take. She functioned without her outside of her role as a helper. Both of them, please understand this, both of them failed to function in the roles and responsibilities that God designed them to do. Well, what are the consequences? Moses doesn't leave us. The Word of God does not leave us in doubt what the consequences are. Let's continue. Verse 7. And then they, and the eyes of both of them were opened, and they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made from those loincloths. Guilt and shame enter humanity. Verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the spirit of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord from among the trees of the garden. The very trees they're free to eat, now they're using as hiding places. They're now hiding together. They're hiding from God. The God who is supposed to be enjoying His presence, the unique thing in the world, they now are hiding from that very presence of God. Verse 9 and 10. But then the Lord called the man and said to him, Where are you? Did did God not know where He was? I mean, was this a really good hide-and-seek couple? Okay, the question's not for God. The question's for Adam. Where are you? What's going on? He wants Adam to process this. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Fear, shame, and avoiding God are Adam's way of responding to the presence of God in the garden. Verse 11, and he said, Who who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Notice God's issue was at this time, I have asked you to do something and not do something. Did you disobey the word that I had given you, the command, the mission? What does man say? Disobedience 
Um, and a man says in verse 12, the, uh, and he said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Blame now enters. And the audacity of Adam's blaming is not only did he blame his wife instead of covering her and supporting her and having a responsibility, he even blames God himself. It's the woman you gave me. Now, if you hadn't done this, God, I'd be okay with the dogs and the horses, but now you gave me the woman and I messed up, is my uh, loose interpretation of that passage there. I took a little liberty there. But the point is, blame is now the result. It's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. It's theirs. Then God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. At least she's a little more honest. Okay? I was deceived. She she acknowledges that she didn't stand behind her husband, but she was deceived. And, And she follows Adam's lead and blames somebody else. And then verses 14 and 15, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all livestock and above the beasts of the field, and of your belly you shall go, and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Verse 15, which is the first promise of the gospel. The first promise of the gospel is right here in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. He will... He shall bruise your, or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking about Jesus. His, Adam's, her offspring is Jesus. His offspring is the demonic world. This is the first promise of the gospel. First glimmer of hope that God will deal with this decisively. And then in verses 16 through 19. And to the woman he said, Surely, without, I, I will surely multiply the pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And we could add, probably, in pain you will raise those children. (laughs) Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you reverse the roles, and have eaten of the tree that I commanded you, you shall not of the tree, cursed is the ground because, because of you. In pain you shall eat of it, he also gets pain. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the eat of the plants of the field. Um, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you turn to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Pain, toil, stress, burden, exhaustion are the consequences in a marriage and a family because of this first reversal of roles. Thus the name of our series the days are long, and the years are short. What, what does that take us, what is the takeaway for us today? That, that's a great story, Royce, about Adam and Eve, how it entered. What are we supposed to do? Sin entered the world. We have the shame, the guilt, the blame, the burden, the stress. That, that's our lot in, in, in marriage and family. It's not all there is, but it's there. So what's this takeaway for us? I think there's two primary ones. Two primary ones. First of all, the primary, and I'm going to be, um, should I apologize beforehand? (laughs) Save myself from a couple weeks from now apologizing again? Um, Okay. First of all, 
a primary problem plaguing and even destroying marriages today, families too, but we're talking about marriages, is husbands not functioning according to their God-given authority and responsibility. Men are passive and not leaders of their marriages. When we interviewed and talked to our home community leaders and our deacons and other people, one of the primary stresses of our culture in family life is that men are passive. Frequently. It was a theme in our survey. So, husbands, men who may someday be husbands, we need to man up. This is where I step away from the gospel for a second and say, do more, be better, try harder. Function according to the authority and responsibility that God has given you. Men, we need to repent of the sin that has caused guilt and shame and fear and hiding and blaming in our marriages. Men, we, husbands, are to know God's Word and teach it to our wives and family. Adam was given God's Word, taught it to his wife, and didn't stick with it. Men, as husbands, in your marriages, need to be on mission in your life and in your marriage. Men, you need to, you must. It is essential that. It is necessary. Have I stressed that enough yet? Request and even insist on your wife's help because you cannot do any of the above things on your own. If you think you can, you got a problem. You need her to do those things. Wives, I have a little less to say to you. I have less experience as a wife. <laughs> Though the biblical truth is still there. But I still have less to say. Wives, help your husbands. Help your husbands. God made you to help him be on mission as a partner on mission Help him do that. And most of you wives know what that takes to do that. He, he, he knows he needs it. You know he needs it. Because God designed you to do that. So function that way. Be his partner on mission and not his adversary in life. Be his partner on mission. God's mission for your marriage. Not his adversary in life. And uh, don't be Eve. Don't be Eve. Don't reverse the roles and take it upon yourself to function the way that God didn't design you to. The consequences will be the same. I think there's a second lesson from this. And that is this, is that many marriages are not on mission that God has called them to do. In fact, I think most, I want to say most, that's not fair. I don't know most marriages. Many marriages are in survival mode. Let's get, let's get through these long days, and we hope the day, years are short. That's not God's intention. There's no joy in that. There's no, there's no benefit to that. We need to go back to the way when God created humanity, he culminates with, creates the world, he culminates in humanity, and gives man and woman together in his image a mission. They have stuff to do. 
to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, to be fruitful and multiply, to take the chaos of the world that he created and make a garden, put it into order and bring God's presence into that. That command has not changed. It was before the fall. It's a command of humanity. In many respects, that mission has not changed for anybody in the world, even non-Christians, before the fall. But I think there's other things. In the truth of the gospel, we know that God has changed us. We have been fallen husbands and fallen wives. We have been sinners, and we have dealt with guilt and shame and blame. But through Christ, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still that Adam and Eve type of people, Christ died for us so that we wouldn't have to. And the benefits we get out of that is we get a changed identity. We're different than we were. We don't have to be that Adam and Eve type person. We're free to do something differently. Now, people might say, okay, the creation order, you know, I get the fruitful and multiply stuff, sounds great. But, you know, the dominion stuff, the subdue it, uh, what does that look like? Well, we at Red Sea, if you've been here for any long, know that we have taken the trouble to articulate that to you. Right? When we talk about mission, if you've been here at any length of time, you should know what we have said through Scripture, not just through Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, but through the entire book of Scripture, we know what God's mission, God has called us as Christians. The gospel changes our identity. We're different people, therefore we have a mission based in the gospel. Anybody want to know what that is? Going to guess what that is? This would be a good time to say it. Well, pathway... <laughs> yes. Our, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know where you're going, Roy, so just throw up the diagram and get it over with. Draw to Christ, develop in community, deploy into culture. Our identity has changed. We have picked three at Red Sea. We are servants of Christ. We are family in Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. And the reason I bring this down is because there's a lot of people who walk through the Christian life and are not sure. What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? What does it mean to be on mission both as a church, but also as an individual and as a family, as a married couple? What does that look like? We know what it looks like. Could you describe it other ways? Yes. Are there other things that people use and images and descriptions? Yes, that's great. But we have chosen to be as clear as we can because we get as elders, we get as leaders. I, I don't know, what, what does that look like? How do I do that? We've shown you how to do it. it. You can be on mission as a husband and wife. It won't be because you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. Okay? I, I'm not trying, this is a, maybe the apology comes in next week. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I'm just trying to be clear. We're, we're trying to take the guesswork out of that and couples think of Red Sea Mission pathways not simply as what the church does, but what you do, could it make a difference in your marriage? Could it put you on mission? Could husbands function as husbands and wives as wives? We are to draw to Christ, develop a community, deploy a culture. As servants of Christ, we are to draw to Christ through Scripture, prayer, and worship. Husbands and wives, can you get closer to Jesus together through Scripture, prayer, and worship? Oh, yeah. As family in Christ, we develop in community through peacemaking, sharing, and celebrating. Is there a couple in here who doesn't need a little peacemaking once in a while? I'm not trying to be sarcastic. It, it, we have conflict. And should we not share? Should we not celebrate? Right now, in this stage of our marriage, 35 years into it, Monica and I are struggling in some areas, particularly in the area of, of sharing. 
And I don't mean like sharing our toys or sharing things. I'm talking about sharing time. And the reason is I'm struggling to live within my responsibilities as a husband because of my work schedule and my traveling. I'm not around a lot. So it's caused consequences in her life. We're not sharing time. We're not sharing intimacy of conversation. We're not sharing unity that God designed us for because I'm gone a lot. I'm struggling with trying to figure to do my job, jobs, plural, and also be a husband to my wife. So even now, we're using this pathway as, okay, we're not doing that well. What are we going to do? And she and Josh and others have called, and my boss have called me on the carpet on it, confronted me on it, just in case you didn't know what that meant. As ambassadors for Christ, we deploy to culture. Can a husband and wife give hospitality and service and evangelism? Can they be fruitful and multiply with the gospel together on mission? Sure they can. My point of saying the pathways is simply this, that if you're as a couple, particularly husbands, if you're not sure what you need to do or could do with your wife, pick one of those areas. Start there. Just start there. And then start working your way around the circle as God directs you. You will get where God wants you to go on mission. Don't be passive. I'm going to close by reading a passage of Scripture. I want to draw this back to the the Gospel, and then we're going to take communion. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul summarizes a lot of the truths we heard today, but he points the, the point of reference in all of this is Jesus Christ. And he's saying to wives, you want to know what it's like to be a wife? Look to Jesus. Husbands, you want to know what it's like to be a husband? Look to Jesus. So let me read this to you. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. And this is equally God's word to us today. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And he is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Emphasis there that he uses the word of God to do that. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot and wrinkle or any such, that she might be holy and without blemish as a bride. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Who... He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting a passage from Genesis. Now, this mystery, verse 32, is profound. As I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let his wife see that she respects her husband. I'm going to invite you to take communion at this time and I'm going to resist because of the time commenting on all this. But it's clear that Christ has... Paul got so confused, not confused, In his mind, the truth of Christ and the church and husband and wife were so intertwined with the gospel, he even says, the mystery is profound, I'm talking about the church, but by the way, you husbands and wives, that's the way it works. Also interesting command, husbands, love your wives, work at that. Wives, respect your husband, it's not going to be easy, 
respect them. We take communion every week to remind us that Christ gives us this opportunity to be united not only with him, but with each other. As you go up today, I want you to, if you're a believer in Christ, you've responded to the truth of the gospel and repentance and faith, I ask you to come up, take of the elements, and remind yourself of the generosity of Christ to you and that he has provided not only for uh, your present-day life, but also for your eternal life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your generosity, but I especially thank you for Christ. And Lord, as we, each of us here, uh, struggle in one way or the other with the reality of marriage or not married or family, singleness, whatever it might be, may we turn our hearts and our minds to your word to find its truth and to know that as we yield to that through the work of your spirit, through the word, we will bring glory to you and we will function in the way you've designed us and so find the fulfillment and joy you've created us for. We thank you in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please go to our website at www.redseachurch.org. If you would like to contact Red Sea, you can email us at info at redseachurch.org.